Hello and welcome to a new edition of the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I'm Salwa Kanana. We're in the run-up to the FIFA 2022 World Cup football or soccer tournament, undoubtedly one of the world's biggest sporting events. Um, And the eyes of the world have been drawn to Qatar, the country hosting the 2022 tournament. And much of the discourse has focused on labor rights and labor conditions in the country. With me today is Max Tunyon, head of the ILO project office in Qatar and the chief technical advisor of the technical cooperation program between the ILO and the state of Qatar. Max, hello and welcome to the Future of Work podcast. How are you today? I'm doing very well, Sawa. How are you? I'm very well, and thank you very much for joining us today. So to start, please give us uh, some background about the program that you manage. When was this joint program launched, and what does it work to achieve? Sure. The the ILO opened up the office in Qatar in, in April of 2018, and we are supporting the government and other partners to develop a very comprehensive and ambitious labor reform agenda. The program of work really touches on a number of areas of of law and policy, uh, looking at enhancing existing institutions and building up new ones, uh, building up uh, social dialogue uh, and and cooperation with with, uh, global unions and workers and and employers on the ground. And in the past five years, we've seen significant change. At the heart of the labor reform agenda are certainly the changes to the kafala system. Now, we never say that the kafala system has been abolished, but we say that the most problematic elements have been dismantled, meaning that now workers can leave the country without permission from their employers. And most importantly, workers can change jobs without permission from their employers. And that fundamentally addresses that huge imbalance of power uh, between uh, workers employers, and employers. Now workers have the ability to, to change jobs. They can negotiate for better working conditions and better living conditions. And at the same time, employers are incentivized to provide better working and living conditions and better wages in order to attract and retain the workers. And it's really important to emphasize that these, these changes to the kafala system are not only useful for workers, but also benefit employers. Employers can benefit from hiring workers locally uh, rather than relying on international recruitment and thereby reducing the costs and the risks associated with international recruitment. So really, it's a a win-win. Now, when you speak of workers, who are you referring to specifically? What group of workers in the country? Well, there are about 2 million migrant workers in Qatar. Um, Migrant workers make up 95% of the workforce in the private sector. And this migrant workforce is extremely global and, and diverse, meaning that it, they come from all continents and they're in all sectors of the economy and across all income levels. Um, low-wage workers uh, make up maybe half of this number, so maybe a million uh, low-wage workers, male and female. The vast majority of those are coming from, from Asia, uh, particularly South Asia. But we see also growing uh, migration uh, flows from from parts of Africa as well. Um, low wage workers who are more vulnerable uh, are working in sectors such as um, construction, security, domestic work, etc. And these, but it's really important to emphasize that these reforms uh, benefit and affect everyone, all workers. You know, when we talk about the ability to change jobs, 
the ability to leave the country without permission from your employer, um, the ability for workers to, to form uh, or, or to be elected as representatives in their companies. These are, are changes that can affect workers in any sector of the economy across all income levels. You mentioned domestic workers. What do we mean by domestic work and why is it singled out from other forms of work? So there are, you know, there are maybe 200,000 or so uh, domestic workers in the country, workers within households. There is a specific legislation that has been adopted in 2017 that uh, provides protection for domestic workers. This is the first legislation that was adopted in the country uh, to provide them with, with rights and to recognize domestic work as work. Uh, these are both male and female uh, domestic workers. And, you know, obviously because of the very nature of the work, there are, there are added vulnerabilities there. One of the key issues that we, we still are looking to, to address is how more uh, domestic workers can benefit from the reforms, uh, the, the reforms around labor mobility, for example, but also around the legislation protecting domestic workers and, and that, that govern working time and domestic workers' rights to one day off a week at least. There are still gaps when it comes to awareness among domestic workers and among uh, employers of domestic workers. And so this is really one of our priorities. How can we raise more awareness? How can we ensure that these rights are, are respected? We're working very closely with the IDWF, the International Domestic Workers Federation. They have a presence on the ground in Qatar, uh, helping to disseminate information to domestic workers, um, building up networks of domestic workers across different nationality groups, uh, and also providing training and, and advisory services, not only to the government, but also to recruitment agencies who play a vital role in the employment relationship between employers and domestic workers. Can you tell us about the minimum wage in the country? Uh, what developments have taken place on that front? Uh, who does it apply to and how significant is it? So the non-discriminatory minimum wage came into force in March of 2021, and it's really significant for three reasons. Firstly, it's non-discriminatory, meaning it applies to all nationalities, all sectors of work, including domestic work. Secondly, it, it's quite unique in that it not only establishes a minimum threshold for the basic wage, but also minimum thresholds for the food and accommodation allowances on top of that. And thirdly, and very importantly, uh, the law establishes a minimum wage commission. And this commission will study the impact of the minimum wage uh, on a periodic basis and propose adjustments. So it's not set at this uh, rate uh, forever. We've commissioned research uh, in, the, in the middle of this year, which will inform the, the work of this minimum wage commission. When the legislation was, came into force in, in March of, of last year, 280,000 workers, or 13% of the workforce, benefited from this change. Uh, and this is having you know, not only an impact on the lives of, of workers in Qatar, but also on their family members back home. In the study that I mentioned that we conducted this year, we found that those lowest wage earners are sending home 81% of their income in remittances. Because they have very uh, low level of expenditure in Qatar, their employer is providing food, accommodation, transportation, etc. Uh, they are able to save a huge proportion of their, of their income and send it home to, to benefit uh, family members back home. Now, we see a high degree of compliance when it comes to uh, the application of the minimum wage, but one of our key priorities is, is still wage protection. There are still too many instances in which workers are not receiving their wages on time. 
there are better systems in order to to detect and address this. So there is now an online complaints platform, um, which has really facilitated workers' access to the grievance mechanisms. There are now dedicated labor courts. And also there is a workers' fund, a government fund that has been established to pay out workers um, once they get a court ruling in their favor so that they don't have to sue their employer in order to recover their wages. This fund has paid out 320 million U.S. dollars in just a few years to workers, which also demonstrates the scale of the problem when it comes to wage abuses. Max, many of these um, workers uh, that you mentioned uh, work in, in often in uh, very high temperatures. Um, can you tell us, please, a bit about uh, what the... A joint ILO Qatar Technical Cooperation Program has done uh, to address the whole issue of heat stress and working uh, under heat stress. So obviously, uh, occupational heat stress is is one of the priorities uh, given the conditions in Qatar, especially during the summer. We in 2019 we commissioned research um, jointly from the ILO, the Ministry of Labor, and the Supreme Committee for the Delivery and Legacy of the World Cup, and we brought in a research team uh, from the University of Thessaly in Greece to conduct the, the you know, groundbreaking research, the most comprehensive research of its kind, looking at the impact of heat stress on workers' health and also, also to test various mitigation strategies, including hydration strategies, work rest ratios, clothing strategies, etc. And from that research, um, you know, which we conducted both on a World Cup stadium site but also a small farm, we're able to see you know, what is the true impact and what measures can be taken to reduce the risk of, of heat stress. And this informed new legislation that was adopted in 2021. And we believe that this is the most you know, progressive uh, legislation that exists on occupational heat stress. And it's very significant in that uh, it, it, it extends the prohibited working hours during the summer months. So now from the 1st of June until the 15th of September, from 10 a.m. to 3.30 to, uh, sorry, so now from the 1st of June to the 15th of September, from 10 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., all outdoor work is prohibited. In addition, there is a threshold at which all work must stop regardless of the time of day or the time of year. And importantly, um, all outdoor workers must un- undergo um, annual health screenings to identify poten- potential conditions which may increase their vulnerability or their susceptibility to uh, occupational heat strain. So conditions like diabetes, hypertension, etc. We've seen that uh, this legislation is, is already having an effect. So we looked at the number of patients admitted to clinics with heat-related disorders over the past four years, before the legislation was introduced and after the legislation was introduced. And we can see that this recent summer, for example, there were about uh, 400 patients that were admitted uh, to, to clinics with heat-related disorders. And this is a steep decline, about 77% decline, from the number admitted in 2020. So it's really um, you know, showing that th- this legislation has had uh, at least uh, contributed to, to safer work environments in Qatar. And I think that this legislation will also have you know, regional and, and global implications. You know, when we look at prohibited working hours in Qatar, if you, if you add them all up, if you tally them all up, there is about 588 working hours that are prohibited. That's more than double um, the prohibited hours in, in many other other countries in the region. And we believe that the research and the legislation will also hold lessons for, for other countries. We saw this summer how you know many workers uh, across the Northern Hemisphere 
were affected by uh, rising temperatures. Uh, and we believe that this legislation and, and the lessons can, you know, uh, can be applied to, to other contexts, certainly beyond the region. Regarding other factors relating to occupational uh, safety and health, including serious workplace accidents, there are vastly varying figures uh, which have been published on the number of work-related deaths amongst migrant workers in Qatar in recent years. Can you put all this into context uh, for us? Uh, do we have an actual number of work-related fatalities in the country? Uh, can you shed light on why there are so many varying figures? Yeah, I think there are three figures that are circulating, but they're all looking at, at different populations. I think the one that gets most traction is certainly 6,500. Uh, 6,500 deaths, and this this comes from a Guardian article from from 2021. Uh, but it's really important to go back to the original article and the context provided there, and that context is often not uh, replicated when the number is is cited over and over again. So 6,500 relates to the the overall number of South Asian nationals who've died in Qatar over a 10 year period. It doesn't distinguish between whether these are work related deaths or non work related deaths. In fact, these deaths include people who are not economically active, people under the age of 18, students, spouses, people over the age of 60, etc. And and also importantly, it doesn't really contextualize the size of the South Asian population in Qatar. Uh, you know, the, the population in Qatar of, of South Asian nationals is huge, about 50 to 60 percent of the overall population and incredibly diverse. They are not all working in construction. They're working in every sector of the economy across all income levels. And so it's very misleading to attribute all of these deaths to to work, to construction, and certainly to the construction of World Cup sites. Um, now, the government was not able to respond uh, with an accurate figure on what is the actual number of work-related deaths in, the, in a year or over 10 years. And we carried out work and published a report in November of last year which presented how data is currently being collected uh, in the state of Qatar when it comes to occupational injuries. And we found that different ministries and different health institutions are collecting data in different ways, using different data points. And when you try and aggregate this or pull this together, it's impossible to come up with one definitive figure. So we commissioned our own work, uh, working with the Medical Research Center and other institutions. And we found that in 2020, just for one year, there were 50 work-related deaths, 506 severe injuries, and 37,000 mild and moderate injuries. And we can break this down by the cause of injury, the nationality of the worker, their age, sector of work, gender, etc. And we're using this to design more effective prevention strategies. Uh, we're using it to inform law and policy. We're using it to, to train labor inspectors and also to raise awareness among workers and employers. And it's, it's uh, at the same time, the report highlighted a number of gaps. So we're also looking at how we can strengthen uh, data collection uh, within the government. And we're seeing progress now on a number of those recommendations, including how data can be collected in a more harmonized way, in a more systematic way. Uh, but very importantly, one of the key recommendations is that still there needs to be more investigations of, of deaths and accidents that may in fact be work-related but are currently not being categorized as such. The other uh, data point relates to deaths uh, on World Cup sites. Now, this is not our data. This comes from the Supreme Committee organizing the World Cup. They've found that there are three. There were three on-site uh, deaths in the construction of the World Cup stadiums, and 37 uh, off-site deaths. Um, one thing that's important to contextualize here is that, you know, at the peak, 
the number of workers building uh, the World Cup stadia and, and related uh, World Cup sites was 32,000 workers. That's less than 2% of the overall workforce in Qatar. And the other thing to point out is that, you know, it's widely recognized that the Supreme Committee has among the highest uh, safety and health standards in the country. They've been working with the BWI, the Construction Workers Union, since 2016. And uh, BWI has con been conducting inspections on site since then and publishing reports. And they've publicly you know, stated how the, the conditions on these sites are you know, comparable to what they see in Europe and North America. So uh, it's, it's another p important piece of context to, to say that the, the, the number of people working directly on the stadiums is a very small proportion of the overall workforce and their standards are, are generally higher than most. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I, I'm going to move on to a, a different subject, uh, a slightly different subject. Now, uh, the ILO um, uh, highlights that effective social dialogue uh, between governments, employers, and workers, um, and sound industrial relations uh, are very powerful means to promote social justice, uh, inclusive economic growth, um, and decent work for all. Uh, Max, can you tell me, I mean, how much of a voice uh, do migrant workers in Qatar have in decision-making that affects their rights and well-being? And is the, uh, the Joint Technical Cooperation Program uh, addressing this issue in any way? So there are no uh, independent trade unions uh, in Qatar. What was negotiated with the international trade union uh, movement uh, and the government of Qatar and the ILO um, at the outset of this technical cooperation program was to start by building up workers' voice and social dialogue at the enterprise level. So in 2019, new legislation was adopted that governs um, joint committees, worker management committees. And for the first time in the region, there are elected migrant worker representatives uh, who at the, at the enterprise level. We've been, this is voluntary, uh, and we've been promoting uh, joint committees uh, within companies with the government, uh, who are actively promoting these now, and with the support of the global union federations who are present in Qatar. So far, there are about 70 companies that have established these uh, worker management committees with hundreds of uh, migrant worker representatives. And we've now established what we call uh, central labor management uh, committees. One exists at the sectoral level within the hospitality sector, uh, and one exists at a client level, so within Qatar Foundation. They've mandated that all of their subcontractors must establish joint committees. So we're in the process of, of gradually building up more and more workers' voice, beginning at the enterprise level, but looking then at building it to the sectoral level and then at the national level. In addition to, to the joint committees, we work very closely with the ITUC and the Global Union Federations. They've been part of the process since the start, and on a biannual basis, twice a year, we meet uh, the ILO, the Ministry of Labor, and the uh, Global Unions to discuss the progress that has been made over the past six months and also to set new priorities for the next six months. Uh, beyond that cooperation at the, the strategic level, the, the Global Unions and the ITUC also have a presence on the ground. There are five staff of the Global Unions. We call them uh, community liaison officers. Their job is to disseminate information uh, within uh, their communities in the different sectors about the, the reforms, but also to hear back from workers on where the gaps exist, where, where the limitations and, and the gaps in implementation exist. And they're also building up 
you know, networks and community leaders in domestic work, in construction, in transportation, among security guards, etc. So it's it's a process, it's an ongoing process, and gradually we're seeing results in terms of um, more joint committees, uh, a sectoral uh, committee in hospitality, and this is something that we're now studying, the possibility of, of perhaps making these joint committees mandatory for companies of a certain size. So there's recognition from all sides that this is you know, yielding benefits. It's good for workers, it's good for employers, especially now that we have labor mobility in the country. Employers are looking at how they can retain their workers. They need to listen more closely to the needs of workers. And also it's good for the government. They see this as a way to address issues um, before they escalate. Max, uh, I have a final question for you, which is, uh, what now? Um, I mean, the labor reforms uh, you spoke of have largely taken place in the run-up to the World Cup, uh, but is that the end of the line? I mean, the current program ends in December uh, 2023. Is there more work to be done on labor reform in Qatar? For sure. Uh, we all recognize that there's a lot still to be done. Uh, the ILO, the, the unions... The government of Qatar, we know that there are still gaps in implementation. I've mentioned some of them when it comes to wage protection, domestic workers' rights, the full implementation of the kafala reforms, but on other areas of work too. Um, and that's why we'll continue working uh, well beyond the World Cup. The technical cooperation program runs until the end of 2023, but the government has formally and publicly requested that the ILO open up a a longer-term presence in Qatar, and that will be discussed over the course of, of 2023. Max Tunion, uh, Chief Technical Advisor and Head of the ILO Project Office in Qatar, thank you very much indeed for speaking with us today. Um, if uh, any of you want to find out more about the work that Max and his team are doing in Qatar, uh, the work of the ILO in the region, uh, or labor reform in general, You can find links on the webpage of this podcast and on the ILO website. Thank you all for joining, and I hope you'll join us again soon for another edition of the ILO Future of Work podcast. Mm-hmm.